0: This is the Abraham's Wallet podcast. Abraham's Wallet spans the gap between the austerity of obedience to God and the prosperity rising from faithfulness. Run your home and your dough like a biblical boss. As a church-going, Jesus-following, dollars-earning grown-up, I've been battling with the subject of luxury, though I haven't always called it that, for a very long time. When I'm confronted with it, I usually come away feeling guilty. Or if I've turned it down, I can actually feel a bit smug. Basically, I haven't had a great measuring stick for the subject. I know that I'm blessed that having any disposable income makes me historically unusual. I even acknowledge that what qualifies as normal or conservative today would be thought of as outlandishly, worldly, distracted, and spoiled for every believer who's ever lived historically. And I also know that a godly man is a giver. And in my family, we do give, aggressively. We give more than our church tells us to. But is that enough? We could always give more, right? So. Going for the venti latte over the grande latte fills me with about a dollar and twenty cents worth of guilt, not to mention the embarrassment of having to say the word venti in public. Geez, what would the Lexus amount of guilt feel like? So, I have lots of questions about luxury. For example, what qualifies as luxury spending? Is luxury spending in moderation okay for the Abrahamically-minded family leader? And is the amount of luxury that's permissible for me relative to my overall income or my savings? Why does a $100 dinner often leave me in need of a tub of Taco Cabana Queso afterwards? Yet I'm fully satisfied by the average $12 dinner. Is flying business class always wrong? What about choosing the Uber XL? These questions are actually great, and they're really hard to answer. And one more thing, if you don't answer them, our luxury-addled culture is going to answer them for you. But you knew that already. See, the culture says, yes, always, all the time, more. Go for it, you spending machine. And a side note, there's a branch of the personal finance community that preaches salvation through extreme frugality. This hope, I'll tell you, is just as bankrupt as our spending-happy American worldview, but we'll get to more on that later. Now then, luxury, if we're honest, is most of our spending in America. Think about it. You almost certainly don't need the amount of living space you currently occupy. Drop in on the Chinese sometime if you disagree. You could survive, and even thrive, on less grocery money, no problem. As I talk to you now, I have three different kinds of globally sourced teas within an arm's reach of myself, a pair of headphones, which probably wouldn't impress you guys, but would make my grandparents' generation's head explode, and a fancy mug that will keep my coffee hot for about five hours. Do I need any of those things? No. Heck, I've got multiple pairs of shoes, and that is far outside the global norm. So we can agree that most of our spending goes to luxury in the global sense of needs versus extras. For the sake of clarity in the rest of this podcast, here's how I'm going to define luxury going forward. Any spending toward non-needs that focuses on pleasure. And before we get to the how much question, allow me to just make the point that luxury does not satisfy. There's no getting around this provable fact. My favorite illustration of this comes from a paper written by two guys named Jing Shu and Norbert Schwartz. They don't sound like a, a likely pairing, do they? So Jing and Norbert studied the differences in satisfaction among BMW, Honda, and Ford owners. They were asking two questions: Will a luxury car make you happy? And actually, the answer is yes, it will. They connected people to brainwave monitors and noticed that when they sat down in that BMW, having come from a Honda Civic, their brain lit up and they were happy and excited. But they asked a second question, and that was, will a luxury car always make you happy? And to this one, the study showed an emphatic no, and believe it or not, that no came quickly. In fact, the effects of the luxury car on perceived happiness, that feeling of newness and excitement when the driver sat down, it wore off in just a few weeks and their brains started behaving just like when they sat in their old Honda Civic. This left multitudes of poor German motorists clamoring for their next fix of luxury before they even had made their first $600 payment. And that's how luxury often works. We go after the one, we get it, we get that shot of excitement, and then it's gone, and we're left looking for the next one. So whether you eschew luxury vehicles or delight in heated leather bucket seats, I bet this is a familiar effect for you. We fixate on a purchase or an experience and then find that the joy of achieving the goal fades away quickly. This is just as true for my $5 latte as it is for a BMW. And let's throw on the pile my scriptural training. It was Jesus who said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And though he never said, hey, you don't need a $200 sweater, a $40 one will do just fine, I sure can't imagine him saying it. Jesus said, let nothing be wasted. There are warnings aplenty to the rich throughout the scriptures. Granted, there are no warnings against riches, just rails that rich people are supposed to live inside. And am I the only one who grew up thinking that holiness and bare bones living go hand in hand? I don't think so. So the returns are in. It's water and oatmeal from here on out. Let's join the Stoics, dial it back to the bare bones and get divested, right? Not so fast there, cowboy. Remember how we talked about you being a steward of everything and not an owner? Well, a steward might reasonably approach the owner and ask, since you've left me in charge of all your stuff, And I know you want it multiplied. How would you feel about me using some of it to enjoy myself while I'm about the work of expanding and deploying the assets of your household? He might ask that. And you should ask that to the owner of all things. Regularly. You should ask. My hunch is that the father will smile at your line of earnest questioning and give you answers. And sometimes, watch this guys, he'll be generous to you. Whoa, (laughs) hold on to your theology. My head's spinning. All you guys who think our father is a miser, and I would strongly caution against thinking of him that way, need to remember that the Lord we serve regularly condones, even decrees behavior that falls deep into the luxury territory. Let me give you some examples. First, he ordered his people's annual calendars around feasts that required big time money expenditure. Israel was commanded to drink plenty of wine and eat prime cuts of meat at least seven times per year. This is an important image that Jesus himself used to describe our own adoption. We're like those invited to a feast, saying no thanks to this invitation is ill-advised. Second, Abraham himself was always up for a good feast, and apparently he took any opportunity to celebrate. That dude threw a massive party on the day that Isaac was weaned It's a little odd, but there you have it. It looks like our man Abraham was looking for an excuse to throw a big party. And have you ever thought about this one? Jesus wasn't accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he drank watered-down tang and ate free saltines he nabbed from the end of the salad bar. He must have been pounding down some Mexican food or eating an entire casserole of mac and cheese to raise the eyebrows of people who were used to feasting like the Jews were right? And uh, how much wine was that guy drinking? Again, the guys who accused him were vociferous wine drinkers themselves. So how far overboard would he have to go? Six glasses of wine? Eight glasses? I don't know, but whatever it was, it wasn't very ascetic of our Lord and Savior. Don't you love Jesus? And did you know that one of the tithes, yes, there were several tithes, was a pile of money you set aside to take your family on a spiritual trip each year? And did you know that you were supposed to use up that whole pile of money, per God's orders, on fine food and drink? Like, God demands a luxury vacation every year. I'm not making this up. But the important distinction here is, and pay attention to this, the use of that money was Godward. It wasn't hedonistic or self-centered, but gracious, God-centered, God-approved, and God-given. As the theologian Francis Schaeffer points out, the design of the temple included freestanding columns that supported no weight, so they weren't architecturally functional, and they held sculptures of pomegranates and lilies on them. They were just decorations. Imagine how much material and work hours went into those superfluous columns. What does this tell us about the value God places on beauty, on flourishes versus necessity? It's worth considering. And lastly, let's remember Jesus being anointed by perfume that cost a year's worth of income. That could have fed a ton of poor people, but he said, guys, this right here, this is a terrific use of money. I really love that story. So considering that we have a loving, generous father, who knows how to give good gifts to his children, and that his gifts aren't only all spiritual, that he even allows and demands some over-the-top celebration, and lastly, that pleasure is not anti-God, could we conclude that at least some of the resources you're stewarding are intended for your enjoyment? That you're even designed to experience the kingdom of God through these types of luxury experiences? Let's go back to the encouragement I gave you just a minute ago, that you ask him to lead you with his spirit of peace whenever you're torn on an expenditure of his money. And as you ask, act in faith, maintaining a good conscience. You're not trying to manipulate him toward a yes, and you also don't assume that a no is his default, because it isn't. That seems like a good plan, at least on small, immediate purchases. And yet, here you are asking with a pure heart whether you should upgrade the master bathroom or take on four more sponsored children for five years. And you still don't know which one to to pick. So what to do then? Enter your board of directors, your community of like-minded stewards. Ephesians 5.13 says that everything exposed to the light becomes visible. And yet, our culture mostly says, don't talk about money. Or sometimes, only talk about money with people who are in your income bracket. Let me admonish you very clearly to involve people who make wildly differing amounts of income in your spending decisions. This topic deserves a much deeper dive, and we gave it one in a previous podcast, but the gist is this. Walk closely with people who know you and love God. We're supposed to serve one another as we walk towards him, all right? Before I cut you loose to navigate these luxury waters, I'm going to leave you with a couple questions that can serve as waypoints. These come from a great talk that John Piper gave on the topic of luxury spending. Question number one that you can ask is, how does this expenditure I'm thinking about demonstrate to the watching world what I love and worship? You see, Jesus mentioned that there's a correlation between where we put our treasure and where our heart's loyalties and affections lie. The world already knows this truth. If I asked you to describe to me a man who loves golf more than anything else in the world, you'd tell me about a fella who spends his time, his money, his thoughts, his energy, everything on golf, right? Sometimes we make mistakes and that's okay. Um, There's tons of grace available for us in that, but sometimes we make mistakes and tell a false story. Let me tell you about one. I once bought a luxury watch and I could afford it, all right? Paid cash, no problem but it fits squarely into this category of stuff I love a bit too much. Anyone who knew me knew that I had devoted a giant chunk of money to a stupid object meant as much to advertise its cost as to fulfill a functional role. I said I didn't worship money, but on my wrist, I wore one of the holy relics of the Church of Dollars. And no, owning a fancy watch is no more sinful than any of the other examples I've given. But it too must be judged according to the standards we've laid out here, right? So I had to sell that watch real fast. More often than not, when you ask the question, am I in love with this thing before plunking down a chunk of cash, you can save yourself from a similar fate. So give it a try. Question number two is how will this expenditure impact my ability to execute the missions I've been assigned? So not all conspicuous expenditures sing love songs to mammon, but the wrong choices can still hamstring you. If you drop all your dough on the greatest Passover feast the world has ever known, but you miss rent in April, then you, my friend, have made a bad choice. Wise use of luxury not only doesn't impede your ability to maneuver as an agent of the king, it actually equips you further. For example, Stephen outlined a while ago in his post about how he does annual goals summits on our blog, um, that they do it up. They spend money, do it big. But that cash outlay fuels his family's vision, gets his wife excited about setting goals and sets them up for a year's worth of advancing all five capitals. And that's actually worth some money. So let me just wrap this all up and I'll let you guys go. Luxury is not a sin. We're not bare bonesing a life of following Christ. But you, my friend, and this culture in which you operate definitely tend towards hedonism. So say no to that poison. Instead, ask your father about possible luxuries, trusting the spirit of peace to lead you through it. And lastly, if you're really stymied and you don't know what to do, take it to your board of directors and trust their ruling. Doesn't that feel better? Now, given the degree to which our culture has taught many of us to mainline luxury, we at Abraham's Wallet can assure you that we haven't spoken the final word on the topic. I hope that we'll continue to explore this idea of how luxury plays into our lives and touches every corner of our financial picture. Until next time, I'm Mark Parrott, and you're listening to the Abraham's Wallet Podcast.